uh, we're into the third week of this series called Fail. And today we're going to talk about how exactly it is that God sees our failures. Have you ever wondered about that? How is it that God sees me and my failures when I do fail? And this series was inspired by some stuff that a guy named Stephen Roy wrote. Uh, His work helped resource my study, my thinking, my prep for this message today. And I want to start by asking you that question. Have you ever just stopped and considered how it is in the midst of a failure? Have you stopped and considered how God is thinking about that particular failure, about you in the moment where you just failed, where you just blew it? I just picture the scene with me, right? You've blown it. Maybe you've blown it big or maybe you've blown it little. And so you're sort of reeling like we do when we blow it and you're thinking everything through and you're wondering what's going to happen next and what do I need to do now? What's the next right decision that I need to make? All those things go through your mind in a moment like that. But along with those immediate urgent thoughts about how you're going to fix everything that you just messed up, have you ever just sort of pressed the pause button, stopped everything and gone, God, how is it that you see me, and how is it that you see this failure in this? Have you ever asked that question? God, what do you think about this right now? God, what is your vantage point? What is your perspective of this failure, of me in the midst of this failure? Maybe if you've ever had that thought, your answer might have gone something like this. I have had that thought, and it sort of bears out like this. I go like, okay, there's big failures, and as our thought process often goes, Big failures must deeply upset God, right? And then there's sort of smaller failures, and those must not be all that upsetting to God, right? We sort of have this gradient, big failures on one side, smaller failures on the other side. God's more upset over here with the bigger ones, less upset over here with the smaller ones. Every failure lands somewhere on that scale. But what can I ask if God's perspective on our failure is much more nuanced, than just big failure over here, small failure over here. God's really upset over here and not all that upset on the other side. What if the landscape really has a whole bunch more contour to it than just that? And I think as we come into a conversation like this where we're reflecting on God's view of our failure, I think it's incredibly important, I'm gonna ask all of you to do this with me right now, it's incredibly important to allow God to do the thing that the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans chapter 12 when he says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, But let God transform you, he's talking to us, into a new person. How? By changing the way that you think. So you want God to transform you into a new person, he needs to actually change the way you think. Then, if he does that, you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so I'd suggest that we all have these views about how it is that God sees. We all have this thinking about how God sees our failures. But what if our thinking about how God sees our failures isn't necessarily accurate? What if it's not just this big spectrum, big ones over here, small ones over here, God's really upset over here, he's not all that upset over here. What if God's view is absolutely nothing like that? And so this conversation today is really all about us, and this is what I'm asking you to do to step into this with me, inviting God to change the way you think especially about his perspective, his view of your failures. To actually invite God to move us, to propel us, to compel us in such a way to live out these truths every single day. Whether we fail or whether we succeed, whether we win or whether we lose, it doesn't matter that we would actually walk out the truth of God, walk out right thinking every single day. And I've been around the block enough times to know 
that there's a whole bunch of people in this world that any time you come into a conversation about God and failure, the bent is that it's all gonna be bad, right? There's a whole bunch of people whose view is that God is upset with them perpetually for their failures, that he's just looking, searching for a reason to smite them, and so you better just watch out because you're gonna get the wrath of God anytime you talk about God and failure in the same conversation, but what if I told you that's not the case at all? What if I told you that's not even close to the case? I want to show you what John wrote about the tenor of Jesus' entry into this world. It sort of frames all of this up. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Amazing. God put on human flesh, stepped out of heaven and became one of us. Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, that son of God, who came from the Father. Check it out. Full of, say this with me, grace and truth. Full of, we're gonna do that again. Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And this is sort of the surprise perspective for a lot of people from God's vantage point when it comes to our failures that he's full of grace and truth, not wrath and condemnation. He's full of grace and truth. And so with the time we have together today, we're gonna unpack four of God's gracious truths about our failures. First one is this. Just because you've failed doesn't mean you've sinned. Ask God to change your thinking on that one because that isn't a very common perspective. And if you want to have a conversation about God's view on failure, you really have to start all the way back where the Bible starts, which is at the beginning, which is at creation. And what we know is that God's the creator of everything, right? God made us as created beings in his image, which is spectacular. Being created in God's image is this amazing, wonderful gift. And yet being a created being, even a created being created in the image of God, means something. And you know what it means? It means that we're quite finite, right? We are nothing, absolutely nothing like God. One of my favorite quotes ever is this one, there is a God and you are not him. Whoa. Like a bucket of cold water in your face, right? God's infinite absolutely in every way and we're not. The most powerful human leaders pale in comparison to the power of God. He's the one with the real power. He reigns supreme. We're clay in his hands. It's that simple. Well, what happens is that in our finiteness, we're caused to have to make decisions with very limited knowledge about the future. And that means something. And it means that a whole bunch of our decisions do not turn out the way we hope or expect them to turn out. That ever happened to you? We've all had that happen. But our choices not turning out the way we hoped or expected them to doesn't mean that our decision was wrong or sinful or bad or... It just means that you made the absolute wisest decision you could based on what you knew or based on what you could predict with the data you had at that moment. Right? It's stuff like you take a new job and you think this is your dream job. You've waited your whole career to land this job. It looks so good and like two months in, your boss is a jerk and you, you don't know what you're gonna do because you thought you were gonna love this, but you hate it. 
How about the time maybe you bought a new house? It was the perfect house, you bought it at the right time and then a couple of years into owning that house, the housing market collapses and there you are. You're stuck with this house that you can't sell for anywhere near, near what you paid for it. Maybe the time you started dating Mr. or Miss Wright, everything was going so well. It was all like violin music and rose petals and it was beautiful and then all of a sudden he or she broke your trust, broke your heart, leaving you crushed, devastated, not even knowing which way was up, right? We've all had those kinds of experiences and we have those experiences because we're human beings. Yes, created in God's image, but extremely limited in knowledge and power. Forced to have to make decisions that come with a hefty load of risk because we can't see the whole picture. By the way, taking risk is built hardwired into the system by God himself. Most of the time, God hasn't chosen to reveal everything about the future to us. And so we make the best, wisest decision we can and we trust God for the outcome. We step off of the edge and say, God, if you don't show up, I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna fall smack dab on my head. And then there's this other piece of it, right? Where we live in this fallen world. That means that stuff happens and stuff impacts us in dysfunctional and very detrimental ways. Experiences that feel to us a lot like, quote, failures. Even though we didn't do a single thing wrong, all we did was make a decision. And we made the best decision we could with everything that we knew at that precise moment. We didn't do anything wrong. God says to us, God wants to change our thinking when it comes to failure by telling us just because you failed, it doesn't mean you sinned. Second thing, when your failure is sin, which it sometimes is, God forgives it. Hear that. Let God change your thinking around that. Sometimes our failures are caused by sin. Sometimes I sin and fail to love God. Sometimes I sin and fail to love my neighbor. Sometimes I sin and fail to love and live like Jesus in this world. I fail, I sin, I fail, I sin. That's all of our story. It's the universal story of humanity. And yet again and again and again what we find is that God forgives the sins of his people. God forgives the sins of his people. And that's been the centerpiece of what it means to be God's children ever since the very beginning of time. You go back in Israel's history and you remember how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, right? He takes them out to the desert, to Mount Sinai. They all hang out at the foot of Mount Sinai. God hand delivers the law, the Big Ten Commandments to Moses. He comes down the mountain. We have this law. It's not very long at all after all of that that the people of Israel broke the first two of the Ten Commandments. 20% of the Ten Commandments, they broke. Right out of the chutes. You remember what it was that they did that broke 20%? You remember? It's the golden calf thing, right? They make this silly golden calf and they bow down and work. Seriously, a golden calf. Give me a break. After all God did to deliver you from Egypt, and you're going to worship, really, the golden calf? Like, Really? And what happened to the nation and people of Israel when they bowed down and worshiped the golden calf? What happened? God forgave them. God forgave them. God forgave them. And not only did he forgive them, but he went so far as to proclaim that such compassionate and gracious forgiveness is at his very heart. Look how God describes himself 
Exodus chapter 34, Yahweh, this is God talking about himself, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. You see that? The God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And that description of of God, by God, is so important that it's repeated both in whole and in part over and over and over again all throughout the Old Testament to describe who God is. Now in Old Testament days, forgiveness was achieved how? Through sacrifices, right? And they were bloody and they were repeated again and again and again and again. And sure, those sacrifices were fine, but they weren't enough to deal with sin fully and finally. So God declares that he's going to establish what? A new covenant, which would permanently deal with the sin of his people. And it was Jesus Christ who inaugurated that new covenant through his death on the cross. And if you recall, the night before Jesus died on the cross, he foreshadowed everything that would happen the next day as he established the sacrament of communion, right? He takes the cup and it was filled with wine and he says this is my blood of the covenant that's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins there it is the fullness of God's forgiveness given to us through Christ that's the gospel of Jesus Christ all in a nutshell God acted finally and decisively in and through Jesus Christ to deal with the issue of sin and reconcile all people, us, back to himself. It's the language of this big theological heavyweight word called justification. And Paul put it like this in Romans 3, 23 to 26. He sort of teases out everything justification is. For everyone is sin. Lots of us recognize that part of this passage. For everyone is sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God... We often don't read on in this text. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners, this is us, all of us, to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. The language of justification. God justifies sinful people who have faith in Jesus Christ, thereby declaring them to be not guilty any longer of their sin, made righteous all because of Christ, nothing else. I think about it as this amazing, amazing exchange. Our sin, your and my sin, transferred to Christ so that he might pay the penalty for it, which he did on the cross. His righteousness transferred to us so that we might enjoy all of it. But this great exchange so that we can enjoy all of the benefits. For God made Christ who never sinned, this describes this exchange, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. When your failure is sin, big, little, 
anywhere in between, God forgives it. Third thing, your failure doesn't define your identity as a son or daughter of the Most High God. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means that we've been adopted as God's beloved sons and daughters. God the Father embraces us in all of his love. He adopts us into his beloved family forever, thereby making the gracious gift of adoption what defines our identity rather than any failure, big, small, anywhere in between. Lots of you recognize this quote from Jesus. It goes like this. There was a man who had two sons. You know the story. It's the beginning of Jesus' most well-known, beloved parable, the parable of what? The prodigal son, yes. Lots of us know the story. This dad, he has two sons. One of them wants his inheritance right now. His dad ponies up. The kid takes the money and runs off to a distant land. He squanders all of his money on wild living. He goes broke, of course. He's hungry, of course. He's so hungry, he's thinking about eating the feet, the food that pigs eat. He's homeless, destitute, out on his head. So he decides to do the only thing he knows to do, and that's to go home. All the way home, and it was some journey, he rehearses his apology, forgiveness, repentance speech to his dad. Dad, I picture, sitting on the front porch, watching the distant horizon for his son to someday return, notices that it is indeed his son who is returning. And so the dad gets up off of his chair, runs to his son. And he welcomes him with a hug and a kiss, the finest treatment you can imagine, new clothes, new rings, new shoes, this giant feast, this incredible party. Remember the start of the story, the dad has two sons, not just one, right? He has an elder son, and that elder son is quite upset that his younger snot-nosed jerk brother is getting such red carpet treatment when he had acted so stupidly. The older son says to his dad, Dad, I did everything you asked me to do. I stayed here. I did the right thing. I did what I was supposed to do, and I'm not getting treated as well as... My little punk brother is getting treated. He's mad. He's upset. And so it begs the question, what's that have to do with how God sees our failures? Here it is. We have to, church, live out of what a guy named Tim Keller calls the grace identity. You could write that down. We must live out of the grace identity in such a way that we walk in an awareness that our successes and our failures do not ever determine our identity. Your successes and your failures do not ever determine your identity because you're always and forever will be a son or a daughter of the most high God and you and I aren't loved any more by our Father in heaven because of our successes nor are we loved any less by our Father in heaven because of our failures. It doesn't matter. Our failure, our success does not define our identity as a son or a daughter of the most high God. We live out of this grace Identity, it's all because of what Jesus did for us. He defines us, not anything else. Fourth thing, and we're gonna close with this one. No failure, no matter how big, will have the last word in your life. Experiencing failure is extremely painful. 
failure feels incredibly shattering. And it's really tempting in those moments of failure to let those moments define your entire life and being. Lots of us have been there. Lots of us know that feeling. And you know that in those moments of failure, you begin to question whether or not this is the final word. And you're like, God, really, is this the last word? Is this how it all ends? And God's answer is no, absolutely not. Because what God does is he comes and he declares quite a different outcome than the one that we feel is looming when we're in our lowest moments of failure. God says, look, he sort of grabs you by the shirt front, shakes some sense into you, gently, of course, shakes some sense into you, and he says, look, no matter how serious, no matter how devastating, no matter how open and public the pain of your failure may be, that is not the last word. It's not even close, God says, to the last word. God triumphs in the end, which means that he and his grace have the last word in our lives. When you turn to the end of the story, the story that we're all caught up in, the one we're all living in, which by the way, it's pretty cool that the end has already been written. When you turn to the end of the story, what you see is this fantastic, glorious picture that God paints of a new heaven and a new earth that God is creating as the forever home for every single person who belongs to him. It's this really staggering image. And as John, the writer of the book of Revelation, looks on, he records what he saw. I heard, this is John's words, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. There will be no more. All these things are gone forever. gone forever and you take a picture and you take a snapshot of that moment and you go it's there it's right there that the totality and the completion of every bit of God's redemptive mercy comes to its fore no more death no more mourning no more crying no more pain no more injustice no more evil And in that moment, it's that moment right there that failure, all of our failure becomes a thing of the past. It's sting wiped entirely from your consciousness forever and ever and ever. And in that moment, God fully redeems all of our failure, every single one of them, sinful ones, non-sinful ones. And in that moment, God will once and for all heal all of our hurts, dry all of our tears, and he will be with us, filling us completely with joy and peace and love forever and ever and ever. And can I show you one more thing that might just blow your mind? God's actually using all of our failures to help bring all of that new heaven and new earth about. Ever thought about that? All the pain that we've experienced, all the pain we are experiencing is used by God in the creation of that new heaven and new earth, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Does that boggle anyone else's mind? How many times have you been in the midst of this gargantuan failure and you've gone, oh, this is just small. It's not gonna last very long. We don't say that. We go, 
this is huge, and this is going to last forever. That's what we say, right? But Paul corrects our thinking. And he says, for our present troubles, the troubles you're in right here, right now, the failures you're experiencing right here, right now, they're just small, and they won't last very long. And watch this. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. You see what Paul's doing there? He's saying that your suffering, your failure, your pain, your difficulty, your challenge, no matter how long it lasts, no matter how intense it might be, is small and won't last very long in comparison with the eternal glory and joy that God is preparing for you someday. So great and so deep and so fulfilling is the joy that's coming that it makes even the very worst of our suffering pale in comparison. Paul uses the word produce when he talks about the joy that God is preparing for his children. And what he's saying there is that our pain, your pain, your failure, your difficulty is not at all unproductive. Quite the opposite. It is productive. We don't suffer ever in vain. God is using your pain and our suffering and our failure to produce his final glorious great triumph and no there's not a chance that you can go back and no there's not a chance that you can redo the past in such a way that your failures will be blotted completely out but take heart God uses them God is using them for your and my eventual and eternal joy. And yes, absolutely, we have to journey with God through a whole bunch of darkness, a whole bunch of pain, a whole bunch of injustice, a whole bunch of wrong. And God says, I know, but hang on real tight to me and trust me and trust my grace because we live by believing, not by seeing and the road ahead is very often more often than not clouded in murkiness and mystery our final destination is not the new heavens and the new earth is our eventual home where there won't be any more death there won't be any more mourning there won't be any more crying there won't be any more pain and that's our ultimate hope and hope changes everything hope changes everything A guy named Red Auerbach coached the NBA champion Boston Celtics through some of their most storied years. Coach Auerbach was very well known for his coaching style. It was very unique, one thing in particular. All throughout every game, Red would be constantly on his feet, prowling the sideline as he coached his team on to victory. He's one of those guys you could barely keep him off of the court of play itself. But when he, when Coach Auerbach had concluded that the game had reached a point where the outcome had been decided and the Celtics' victory had been assured, he would sit down on the bench and he would light an enormous stogie, a cigar. He couldn't have ever gotten away with that these days. This was some years ago. He'd pull out this giant cigar and he would light it up. It was his trademark signal that it was just a matter of time before the victory would be final. 
Now, sometimes in a close game, Red would light his victory cigar only seconds before the fight. He'd be like scrambling to try to get it lit to signal, yes, we've got this. In other games, however, he would light it much, much earlier. And just imagine being the opponents, right? It's like, oh, okay, it's all over now. And in those situations, it wasn't the lit cigar that ended the game, was it? Not at all. There were still more minutes to be played, more shots to be made, more rebounds to be gathered in. Sometimes there were even injuries in those final minutes while Coach Red sat on the bench smoking his big stogie. But none of those would affect the outcome. The final minutes of those games were played in this incredibly confident expectation of final total victory because the coach had signaled his sure and certain confidence in that. And church, here's what we know. We're living in the space right now a lot like the final minutes of a Boston Celtics victory, aren't we? The ultimate victory of God over all of the forces of darkness and sin and evil and death is sure. Bob said he was struggling with this picture, but I'm just going to throw it out there, of God lighting a very fine Cuban cigar. It's lit. And his victory was accomplished fully and finally through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of him, we can be assured of the final outcome. The victory won by Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness guarantees our ultimate hope. And no failure, none whatsoever, will have the last word in our lives. God ultimately triumphs. The new heavens and the new earth are on their way to us now and our ultimate future will be filled with joy and love and all of our current pain and suffering will be used by God to help bring it about. It's true. It's true. I invite you to take your stuff and set it aside if you would. And I just invite you to move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord. And maybe you'd just press in and reflect with God and ask him to continue to change your thinking about failure. God, how is it that you're changing my thinking right here, right now, today, about failure? What is it, God, that you're saying to me about failure? What is it, God, that you want me to do about everything it is that you're saying to me about failure? God, that you would speak to us and that you would change our thinking, transform our thinking in the way that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So that as a result of our right thinking, correct thinking, that we would live out Jesus what it is that you're asking us to live out, step out, walk out. And maybe for you today, part of your action is about you choosing to be and become an adopted son or daughter of God by inviting Jesus to be your savior once and for all. And if that's you today, you can take the really bold step of crossing the line of faith in him by praying along with me. If that's you, I invite you to pray with me. 
Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. I confess that I've fallen woefully short of your perfect, glorious standard. And though I've been trying, though I've been working my dogs off, I still fall short. I require a savior. I require you, Jesus. And so Jesus, I say thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for showing me what life your way looks like. I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I thank you with everything in me for that fantastic, great exchange. My sin for your righteousness. I trust you, Jesus, with my everything. And if you're someone today who's crossing the line of faith in Jesus Christ, becoming an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God, that's the biggest thing in your whole life. So big that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision. And this is a personal, private moment. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed, nobody's looking around. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so brave as to just slip your hand up and make eye contact, lock eyes with me? If that's you, you can do that right now. Just let me agree with you and your decision to follow Jesus. You can do that right now. There, yeah, way to go. Way to go. Yes, sir, way to go. Yeah, you too, sir, yes. An adopted son of the Most High God. That's who you are. And Jesus, we say thank you so much for these who you are bringing home. These you are saving today. These who are exchanging their sin for your righteousness once and for all. Thanks so much, Jesus, that we get to be just a little tiny part of what it is that you're doing, the way you're breaking into lives right here. What joy and what celebration. And Jesus, we know that life is hard. You know that life is hard and that failure stings and that it leaves us reeling. And so God, help us press into you, cling to you. Help us live into the hope that's coming, that you've promised, that you've assured. And help us please, Jesus, just catch glimpses of how all of this, our success, our failings, our wins, our losses, are all accruing for your glory, toward your ultimate victory. For Jesus, it's you we trust. It's you we trust.